This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on chronic kidney disease. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Chronic kidney disease is a common condition. It's estimated that 9% of the adult population worldwide has CKD. Unfortunately, it often goes unrecognized until the most advanced stages. So CKD is a real challenge for healthcare systems around the world. To tell us about this disorder, we have on the line Professor Manisha Singh, who is Associate Professor, Division of Nephrology, University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. And importantly, Manisha is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this disease. So Manisha, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is CKD? Thank you for having me. So yes, um, I am glad you started with that, uh, that CKD is, um, is, is quite an impactful disease. For definition, we define it as any abnormality of kidney structure or function that has been present for more than three months with implications for health. And this little tag at the end of this uh, definition is very important because you could have an abnormality in the structure or a function as um, defined by the labs, but it might not have an implication for health. So the complete definition would be chronic kidney disease is defined as abnormality of kidney structure or function present for more than three months with implications for health. This translates into glomerular filtration rate of less than 60 mils per minute um, which is normalized for the body surface area, or presence of one or more of the markers of kidney damage, which can be protein in the urine, more specifically albumin, urine sediment abnormalities, uh, electrolyte abnormalities that are present for more than three months, abnormalities detected by histology. If you got a biopsy that shows a kidney damage, that's pretty a diagnostic of kidney disease. And structural abnormalities, which you may have detected by imaging, like uh, in radiology, if you saw polycystic kidneys, now that would be a state of chronic kidney disease. Or just having a history of kidney transplant, that itself puts the patient in the category of stage 3 chronic kidney disease. Okay, thank you. That's, that's very helpful. Let's move on straight into diagnosis. What are the cornerstones of diagnosis of this condition? Um, So one of the things that we need to know just before that is that most commonly diabetes and hypertension lead to chronic kidney disease. That means everything that you would do for a a diabetic patient or for a hypertensive patient, you would be wanting to do that for a kidney patient. Basically getting the basic metabolic panel, as we say, um, that is uh, the cornerstone of diagnosis of kidney disease. And specifically the markers that we are looking for are called the stigmata of kidney disease. Creatinine used to be our baseline. I mean, used to or still is the baseline of diagnosing a kidney disease. But more recently, we've started using more and more of the cystatin C-based equations to diagnose kidney disease, which is a little better than creatinine in a lot of ways. And when added to creatinine, it gives us a way better understanding of how bad the kidney function really is. In addition, we would do urine analysis. Of course, if if, you know the, the whole product of the kidney is uh, the urine, as they say, which is not true at all. The, the truth is that uh, your clean blood is the is the product. We would be checking uh, an ultrasound of the kidney, which if it's very contracted, small kidneys, they directly 
would make you think that something has caused a chronic damage to the kidney, which has made the kidney go small in size. Getting a kidney biopsy can be one of the investigations that we can go after, but it's usually done when you have a management decision to make based off of that biopsy. And tell us about EGFR. How important is that in diagnosis? Uh, Excellent question again. So estimated GFR is a lab value. Typically, when you're doing a research on a kidney patient, you would want the exact value where we do the glomerular filtration rate. That is exactly in the subunit of the kidney. How well is that subunit working? Now, we had the whole, you know, we can put in markers and we can see how well that's filtering out. But that's not really practical for the patient. Um, what is practical is having a calculated lab value, which ba- which is based off the patient's demographics and the creatinine and the cystatin C values that we are seeing. The assumption being that everybody has a capacity of generating creatinine and cystatin C and based off their muscle mass and their body and their race and, um, you know, the size, there is some amount of filtration that must be happening uh, that uh, go- that correlates with the value that I'm looking at. Now, most labs will give you an estimated GFR as a, as a reflex. You, know, you don't really need to ask for it. But still, we do find some labs that are not giving the estimated GFR values. It's a good idea to ask for it if your lab doesn't carry one. Okay. Yes, yeah, so look, I think most labs would do EGFR, and it's almost universally mm-hmm. available. But serum cystatin C, t- tell us about that more. Do you need to do it in all patients or are there any particular types of patients when you might request that investigation? The problem is just that every time we have a new test, it's you know a little expensive to run. It's a little um, taxing to the labs. We do use creatinine in most patients still, and that's okay to use. But um, specifically, when you're looking at higher GFRs, when the kidney function is more than 60, at that point, it's harder to tease out, um, you know, how bad is the kidney really? And uh, a particular set of patients, somebody who's much older, who doesn't have as much muscle mass to generate that creatinine. If there are amputees, in that case, again, creatinine will not be the best option for the kidney function. People that are vegetarians, you know, they, they might not even be taking the same kind of uh, diet as the non-vegetarian patients. Those are specifically the areas where I would recommend uh, using a cystatin C-based uh, equation, which is way more specific and sensitive for uh, identifying kidney disease. Okay, thank you very much. That's really helpful. What about common pitfalls in diagnosis? Can you tell us about those? With, with kidney disease, actually, there are a lot of pit, pitfalls in it, at every step. There are limitations of the GFR estimation you know, in itself because we don't realize that sometimes the patient is not in a steady state, such as a hospitalized patient, when they get most of their labs. And that's why it becomes very important for the primary care providers or the frontline providers to be aware that getting these labs as a routine practice of their uh, wellness check might be a good idea. The other pitfall is just that, that we don't realize that that particular patient in front of you may need a very specifically directed uh, workup. There are, of course, social disparities, which we are all aware of, but we don't really don't, um, you know, we don't see it in context of the patient that's sitting in front of us. There are biases that we struggle with ourselves and being aware of them also helps your overall management of the patient. Along with that, there are some things that are really not as um, as well known, something like heavy metal poisonings, 
environmental changes, how climate change affects kidney disease, that itself is not very, you know, it's not in the awareness factor, which are all very, very important to kidney patients. Okay. Um, thank you. Let's move on from diagnosis now to management. Tell us about, first of all, the kind of the cornerstones of, of management. What are the pillars of management of chronic kidney disease? So for chronic kidney disease, we have the five stages that we talk about based off of the GFR of, um, of the patient. Now, most of the times, the management of severe uh, kidney disease, that's stage 3B and onwards, is done by nephrologists. But early CKD is something that the primary care providers will see upfront. What uh, we can do early on is these are these 10 points. Uh, first is attaining a blood pressure goal of around 130 by 80. You can lower it when albuminuria is present. And if they're older than 75 years, then you might, and with multiple other conditions, um, I can understand completely tailoring the blood pressure to the patient, you know, based on what your own assessment is. The second point is attaining proteinuria goal of less than 500 mils, uh, milligrams daily. This is, you do whatever it takes. So use the RAS inhibition, use, you know, ACEs, ARBs. Uh, you can use non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers for that. So upfront for managing blood pressure, most of us end up starting with an amlodipine, which is, you know, which is once a day drug. It's an excellent drug for blood pressure management. But if you switch to cardizem or verapamil, you'll also get a proteinuria benefit. Um, now, if the patient is a diabetic, this is the point three, you are targeting an HbA1c of about seven, which is equivalent to an average blood glucose of about 155 milligrams per dl. Here, I want to highlight uh, using uh, SGLT2 inhibitors uh, upfront and early if you, if you have a diabetic patient. It reduces mortality, decreases hospitalizations for heart failure, and it has modest benefit in uh, blood pressure and weight reduction. Um, there are some caveats to that, of course. Yeast infections are well known. You just, you know, educate the patient about the side effects. But not using SGLT2 uh, may, may not be the best thing for your diabetic patients, especially at high risk for a progression to kidney disease. The fourth point is correction of metabolic acidosis. Now, kidneys, one of the functions of the kidney was to get rid of the, the acid load in the body. If it's not working well, the acid load is going to go up. But you will not know if this is actually acidosis or it's a response to something that's a primarily alkalotic process. So getting a venous blood gas at least once at least once in your kidney patients is a good idea, which will help you see that this patient might be having a metabolic acidosis, which is very easily fixed with using a bicarb tablet. The fifth point is referral to nephrologist at an, as early as you can. Now, most of the, uh, the clinics here I see are booked out about two to six months in advance. So the earlier the referral that is made, the earlier your patient has, you know, you can be um, co-managed with a nephrologist. Most nephrologists should be on board by the time the CKD stage 3B is, uh, is attained. Or even if the patient has high degree of proteinuria, you don't want to co-manage it with a nephrologist. Point, which is something only a primary care provider or a frontline person can do really well, is getting age-appropriate vaccinations and cancer screening done. I cannot overemphasize this enough. This is something that by the time the patient has advanced chronic kidney disease, they are unable to mount a response. And so the, the vaccines that I would be giving in my clinic are not going to be as effective as what they would have got if they had early kidney disease. 
or even if they were at risk of kidney disease. Then, of course, uh, we had the uh, seventh point was having your lab calculate an EGFR for your patients and get a renal pa- panel once a year. Now, most societies do not have a position on screening for chronic kidney disease. But if you feel that it's required, if your patient is a high-risk patient, is a diabetic, is a hypertensive, go ahead and do a renal panel once a year. That's quite okay to find that you know, if, if you can um, get that done. The eighth point is the diet modifications. Now, kidney is kidney diseases respond very well to dietary modifications. Restricting salt under two grams daily in late stages of chronic kidney disease, we do a protein restrictions, but we do not do it upfront so that the patient doesn't get malnourished in the beginning. The ninth point is something that is a no-brainer: smoking cessation and tobacco advice and referral for management. Smokers do badly across the board, no matter what kind of disease they have. So it's a very good idea to address that uh, in your um, wellness visit. And the 10th point is the medication reconciliation for dose adjustments. Remember that with kidney disease, quite a few of the drugs are going to go through the kidney. And each of these patients are at very high risk of polypharmacy. They have 10 to 12 medications on their script. And it's important for a provider to go over the medications because that's one thing we do to the patient. We should be very cognizant of that. Um, those are the 10 points that I think would help every provider. Thank you very much. That's, that's really helpful and comprehensive. Let's follow up on, on some of them. Um, getting the blood pressure down and controlling the proteinuria. Any particular drug class that doctors and other healthcare professionals should use? So my favorite is, of course, lisinopril that is doing upfront RAS inhibition. It affects both. It helps you with the blood pressure and it helps with proteinuria. There is a mild increase in bump in creatinine that you might notice in some patients. And that's okay. We do get labs about two weeks after starting the medication. There used to be a concern for hyperkalemia. That is, the the potassium of these patients could go up. But now we have excellent medications for managing that too. Something like patiromer and something like ZS9, they can be used uh, and they are easily available. Okay, thank you. What about getting the hemoglobin A1C down? What drug or drugs or combination of drugs is best for that? Yes. So early CKD, it's okay to use whatever you're using right now, you know, using metformin if you need to. And basically, you know, what the current practice is, that's fine. But um, we have, we are highly emphasizing the HGLT2 inhibitors at this point that the sooner you start, the better it is. Now, remember, most of these drugs are not studied in late-stage GFR, GFRs. You know, GFR under 30, we end up not, you know, not being able to use these medications. The goal is not to get the patient, let the patient get to that GFR. Okay? So if you start this early, there's a renoprotective effect. Managing diabetes to the target, whatever it takes to get the patient to about a 7 is a good place to be. If you need to use insulin for that, that's fine. You'll be the best judge for that. Okay, thank you. Vaccination, the the COVID vaccines, are they safe and effective in patients with chronic kidney disease? Okay, this is uh, this is wonderful that you're uh, bringing this up. I would like to give a little bit of a data. What happens with kidney disease is if we can't control it, eventually people have to have some kind of a renal replacement uh, therapy, which means transplant or you need to go on dialysis, or you know, just that you have a late-stage CKD when you don't mount a response. So initially, in the first wave, the 14-day mortality for our patients was over 
Now, this is in a very vulnerable group of patients. That means if you get the COVID, the disease, the death rate was very high. The disinformation in the media is enormous. And that's why it's very important to take this very seriously right now. The thing about every vaccine is that what is the risk that I'm looking at? There is a risk of the disease and there's a risk of side effect of the vaccine. But I'm targeting to effect of the vaccine. Now, in all our patients, they are expected to not be able to mount that good a response, actually, because they are immunocompromised. So it's doubly important that you get the vaccine in time so that you have the whatever ability you have to mount a response against the disease, you're able to do that, uh, mount that response. Now, for adverse effects, you have the same adverse effects as, you know, as any other medication. I mean, some of us have food allergies, you know, but you still try different kinds of foods. That's okay. Very rarely was it seen that they had somebody that had life-threatening um, adverse effects. And, you know, those are so rare and COVID is so, ram- I mean, it's just ravaging through our countries right now. I see it as a no-brainer that get that vaccine if you it's available for you. Now, the position statement from most societies across the world have has been that these are the vulnerable immunocompromised patients. When available, get the vaccine. If there is any you know, any um, any hitch in the way, if you're feeling very strongly against it, at least the people that reside in the same household should get the vaccine. The only thing I want to add is that if you're getting a flu vaccine, then it's, it's a good idea to uh, spread it out by a week. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. Back to chronic kidney disease itself. Do most patients need a statin? Yes, people over 50 will need a statin. That's our position statement from the KDGO guidelines. People under 50 who are at a higher risk of cardiovascular disease would also be recommended to take a statin. What about erythropoietin stimulating agents? When can they be helpful? Yes, so uh, in um, kidney patients, having anemia is, is, a, is a problem. And uh, the kidney itself was producing the erythropoietin. When kidney failure sets in, to the extent that it's uh, impacting the patient's life, it's a good idea for us to replace whatever we can. We look at the iron studies. If the iron stores are good and iron is adequate in the patient, we do use erythropoietin, um, synthetic erythropoietin substitutes. We have darbopoietin, we have merceras. Um, and uh, we try to use the long-acting preparations in clinics. That way, we target getting a hemoglobin above 10. It's, it's very helpful for the patient, and it does help in the quality of life also. Okay, thank you. Last question about drugs in management. Vitamin D and vitamin D analogs. Tell us um, when they might be helpful. Yes, yeah, so going back to our med school information that uh, the kidney was activating the vitamin D. So sometimes your stores can be good, but the activation might not happen. The way we would know is what was the product of that. Calcium would be going down and the parathyroid hormone would be climbing up. That's one of the things you're going to see in as a stigmata of chronic kidney disease. When we see that upfront, we start with the active forms of the vitamin Ds like calcitriol. And uh, we don't do, a, you know, you don't do it daily at a very high dose. We start slow. We try to just sort of, you know, cut the bite off of the ETH climb. And also you can always target the stores. That's quite okay. If you see vitamin D deficiencies present, then, you know, giving a cholecalciferol is completely fine. 
Um, but I, you would need in a kidney patient, you are going to need the calcitriol at some point or an active vitamin D analog. Okay, thank you. Um, last question about management. What are the common pitfalls in management that, that we haven't mentioned up to now? The common pitfalls in management have been mostly lack of awareness because uh, at the provider level and at the patient level, I'm always surprised about, um, you know, how how people are not aware that they have chronic kidney disease. And when you're not aware of a disease, you're not going to take steps to control it. Um, there are, then the providers have a problem about, you know, what's the risk to this patient? There is a tangy calculator which is available uh, publicly. Uh, the web address would be HTTP. The, the double two dots, two forward slashes, ckdp, c-r-i-s-k dot o-r-g, forward slash, low g-f-r, events, forward slash. Using this as a risk predictor can help providers figure out what the risk of that particular patient is going forward. The other thing is that we do not discuss end-of-life care as much as we really need to because these are high, you know, these are patients that are usually going to get very sick very quickly. We need to have a good program of palliative care that is working, uh, co-managing the patient with you. Thank you very much, Manisha. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.